actually what we're teaching here in Dzogchen. <laughs> and it actually has arisen. It's, a, it's arisen legitimately in the way that they say it arises. They say that Dzogchen teachings can come about either through a direct transmission from teacher to teacher from the time of the Buddha, or it can be arising from hidden teachings so that uh, a teacher such as Padmasambhava might give a teaching and then hide it and it wouldn't be discovered until eight centuries later or it can come through the pure vision of any any Buddhist who's practicing and, uh, and becomes a teacher so in this situation um, the effects of Adhinchar's direct practice, your direct practice basically arises in his ocean teaching which is that um, the particular awareness that you have right now is totally insubstantial and totally lucidly clear and that that's the, the fundamental basis of all existence it's quite a, quite an impressive thing <laughs> and that everything else we come up with everything else we chase everything else we try to accomplish is merely um, an appearance uh, a changing modification of the moment so that essentially it's always there evident to us that awareness is always here in the moment there's never been any time that we can be aware of that it hasn't been even when we're asleep it's there because uh, when we wake up in the morning we know whether or not we had a good night's sleep um, even in the moments when attention drifts it's there because um, we know that attention has drifted and we're aware that there was some kind of a gap in where our attention was and where it is now and uh, so awareness is always present always evidently uh, present and that uh, everything else is insubstantial that it, it um, is always modifying itself so that there's always changes in attention always changes in so-called objects always changing nothing is ever ever created and um, there's just that constant modification constant changing appearance and if we look to, to describe the uh, awareness itself you can't find any way of describing it it's just <laughs> lucid <laughs> present awareness <laughs> and yet we're always running around saying I don't understand life. Like, what, what's it all about? What, I can't quite see what it is all about. And yet, every time I get hooked into something, thinking that it is something, I always end up knowing that it's insubstantial. It doesn't doesn't have any absolute reality to it. Um, that's quite a powerful statement. <coughs> The teaching of Padmas and Yes. <laughs> I used to wonder what was the Zogchen was all about. You know? <laughs> 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 Suddenly became very popular, and everybody was doing Zogchen courses. And the Vipassana teachers in America were all 
rushing off to Dzogchen teachers, Joseph here, Joseph and Sharon. <laughs> yeah, I wondered when I, in Inquiring Mind, uh, one edition, they, they had a, an article by Surya Das, who's a fairly well-known Dzogchen teacher, and he said that he had studied with Ajahn Chah, and uh, <coughs> said that he was surprised because basically that was a Dzogchen teaching. So I, I really kind of wondered what was going on there. <laughs> Well, it shows that you can, that you, you know, if you, uh, I mean, they, they say that Hinayana is just the Four Noble Truths teaching. And then, and then, the, then the uh, Mahayana was the teaching given at Vulture's Peak and some other place. Uh, so that, like the the Buddhist teaching was was geared for different, uh, you know, groups or or uh, at, diff at different times. And of course, the uh, oh, this can be proven. <laughs> But the, but the thing that, that kind of uh, comes clear is that if you follow the Four Noble... You see, in the Theravada, they don't really... Most Theravadans don't... They, they follow commentaries and that they don't really practice Four Noble Truths or penetrate them. They... they like, there's so much emphasis on uh, Visuddhi Magga or in Sri Lanka, they emphasize Visuddhi Magga all the time or or the uh, Melinda Panha or things like this and then they and the actual, or the Mahasi Sayadaw method is always based on Abhidhamma. And, and so you never, you, you know, you don't feel that you're really uh, penetrating the Four Noble Truths in any, in any real way. They teach them, you say, of course, there's the Four Noble Truths, and then they go on to something else. That's what I've generally heard. But with uh, Lungpa Cha, and with the Buddha Tat, it was just Four Noble Truths was the focus. And then it's through that, that penetration of the Third Noble Truths, cessation, that you, uh, where you really, uh, when you realize <coughs> that, that uh, you're, you know, you're, you, you, you shift from from, uh, you begin to, to, you have that space, like you, you have a perspective on, you, you, you experience emptiness, you start recognizing emptiness and anatta uh, and junyata as it's realized rather than just some idea. And then just the logic of it, you know, just to me it was the logic of that if, if you, you know, if it's timeless, and like Santitiko Akaliko, E Pajiko Panayiko Bajatang, then, then it, it couldn't be, it couldn't be 
it's timeless. You can't. Time would not be a vehicle for 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 that realization. So so just the idea, and and if it's non-self, any self-view could never be, as long as you're you're trapped in some kind of self-view. Even to the one that I've got to practice or I've got to do this. Uh, as long as that's the influencing factor in your consciousness and you don't see it and you, you attach to that, then how can you ever possibly realize the Dhamma? Because you're, you're, always, you're always starting with a view of yourself and then the practice always ends up with some kind of disappointment. So then, then it became fair that you had to, that the, 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 it says it's a direct teaching. So it's directing you to that, to this, to this realization of, uh, say, the that lucidity of consciousness, you know, of awareness. So I remember having an insight when I was a samanera. I remember a samanera the first year. I had this strong insight into just this. Uh, suddenly realized, it was, uh, here I'd been, been questioning, up in my mind all the time, just this, well, well how do you let go? How, do you, how, do you, how can you let go of things? And just this, this uh, you know, and thinking, because so, I was such an obsessed thinker, you know, and trying to figure it all out with my intellect. And I figured it out pretty well, but then letting go, and how do you do it? And, and then I just suddenly stopped my mind, quite, just suddenly, concentrated in the way that the mind stopped thinking just for a, for a moment and it was like a real insight as I saw that a space I saw that uh, that one could do it how to do it even though after that I, I you know I, I had the insight but then the the, the uh, habits the obsessive habits were still you know rampant as ever but at least there was a, a penetration at that moment. Uh, there was a real insight into the fact that you could do it. And then, then, then contemplating more and more, the, like this, the sound of silence, or, or things that, that signify emptiness, or that are formlessness, or a relationship of, of, of uh, like the cessation of things. I, I really used to just, in, you know, continuously investigate ending of things. Just obsess my, my whole consciousness with, with the ending of, of anything. Just to see, just to know, an ending's an ending. Death, ending, they're all the same. <clears throat> and, I mean, as far as the Third Noble Truth goes, I mean, in quality they can be very different, you know, in their quality or their <clears throat> quantity or their importance or insignificance, they're different. But in terms of ending, it's just ending is ending, death is death. So then, then just contact, just uh, focusing on that is taking cessation as a as a as a subject for contemplation until till that that. Where the where where things cease in the mind, this, that's that experience, that realization of cessation was very strong. That's why I like that quote from the quartets: uh, to apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time, <laughs> because <coughs> that 
that to me made a lot of sense as an experience, you know, as a, just co- through contemplation of that very noble truth. Because in practice, I've always tried to make the Dhamma something here and now. So it's not, it's not like, it's, it, I said, if it's Dhamma, it's here and now. So it, it's, it's got to apply to now. It just can't be some theory or speculative teaching or idea about Dhamma. Or, uh, it, has, it has to apply to, to this creature here and his experience of life, no matter what it is. It can't be some abstraction. And uh, and it can't be some theory in in the in the in the books. It, it seemed to me the Buddha was always pointing to the fact that it's now rather than enlightenment is now realization is now. Uh, there's no self because in the now, when the, I mean to to become a person, you have to think, and then to think you're using uh, thoughts that that convey time, a past uh, and a future sense of being, of having, of really believing I am a person who was born and I'm now this person sitting here, the same person that was born 60 years ago, 61 years ago, is, is this one here? And then we can say, well, you know, you, your body cells change completely every seven years. <laughs> <laughs> you can, you can go on like that, but it's still, the assumption isn't, is that we're, we're actually the same person from birth to death that, uh, and that's just the, because of the thinking process and the, the ability to to make assumptions about ourselves to remember to have a memory and to hold views about ourselves and hold opinions about ourselves so then you you see that is that arises and ceases in the present I mean of, of an assumption and a view of myself <coughs> It's not permanent. It, it's 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 rise. It ceases. It's, it's nothing. Uh, it's nothing that's kind of, kind of. Uh, you know that that you're. You're carrying as a as a kind of continuous thing lying inside you. You know sometimes you, you get that in that idea of latent tendencies. We talked about that now. That was a pretty scary one. You know, or psychologists say latent tendencies yeah. you got this idea that deep down inside you is some kind of latent tendencies that might be you don't know what they are and they could be absolutely horrifying because when you imagine latent tendencies you don't tend to think that they're, they're angelic or divine do you? <laughs> at least my mind would tend to serve them <laughs> Probably something pretty dreadful. They're latent, and uh, it's probably best not to to find out what they are. <laughs> where, where in reality, you know, whether you have latent answers, that's not really important. Is that is that what arises, what is present now, what are, what has arisen now, ceases, and so. Any sense of yourself as a person is, no matter how strong it might be in the present, it isn't permanent. It's it's gone as soon as you think about something else. 
And so, so then your attention is in the in the now, and then you see that there's no nobody, no kind of continuous soul or person that that is that has a history or or, or that has any reality. It's something that's continuous in time. Not not the way it is. But there is this continuity of of awareness. This this ability to sustain and be aware <clears throat> that, what is it insubstantial but lucid <laughs> now you can't you can't there's no substance you can't get your teeth into it you can't get your hands on it you can't, <laughs> you can't grasp it <laughs> there's no substance you no substance you don't know what it is then but it's here and now, it's like this. <laughs> and so you, suddenly you're, you're awakened awareness. And then you think, yeah, the Buddha, the awakened, the, the awake, that which is awake, aware, now, rather than the Buddha that, that reached uh, Parinibbana back in India 2,537 years ago, we're not, we're not, not the, you know, that's a historical approach, isn't it? Uh, and and uh, that's what I've always found distressing about Christianity was, was the fact that it, it said, we're, you know, Jesus Christ uh, died and for us uh, 2,000 years ago. And, and uh, and we should be forever grateful for having God sacrificing His Son for us. Uh, somehow, they just couldn't figure the point or the reason for that. It just didn't, you know, didn't didn't make sense to me as being real, or that anything that it sounded, you know, like a fairy tale to me, like it was maybe pointing at something beyond itself than just the, 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 the story itself. <coughs> so that this is just like 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 applying the, the uh, experience of the here and now and uh, and reflecting listening, watching. And it's not, not historical, it's not a matter of history, but of, of uh, timelessness. So in, in the here and now, what is timeless? See, what, is, what is timeless? And of course, you're like we do these uh, reflections on time in the morning, and uh, you think of, you know the past and the future. What is it now? And you contemplate. What is the past in the pre right now? What is the future right now? So that you're, you're, you know, what is the self right now? What is non-self? And this, this is kind of questioning, self-inquiry. You're really, 
really, uh, you know, looking and, and, and contemplating is, is like questioning, not to, not to get some kind of, of wordy answer, but to, to point to, to, to awaken the mind to, to, to kind of its receptive awareness. To where the, you're, you're letting go of the desire to, to get an answer, but you're, you're just opening the mind the, the, to, to, uh, to the present. So the Buddha Dhamma always has that, that you know, like in, in contemplation, you're, you're actually, you know, taking the teachings and, uh, and saying, right now, what is this, what is this as far as my own experience goes? Rather than thinking of it in terms of, of reading about what Ananda did or Sariputra, but, but what, you know, how, what is this, how does this apply to, to, to my experience of life? In this, in this, in this incarnation, in this time, this place, so that you're, you're, uh, you're, you're realizing, uh, you're, you're seeing the real thing. You're, 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 there's the reality of it, rather than the, than the, than the theory of it. <clears throat> because, like, like. Uh, uh, The, everything like the, there's so many of these words in the in the sutta about you know the amata the deathless and then the 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 conditioned and the unconditioned and using words like niroda and nibbana and uh, I mean it's a, it's a, the, the 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 psychology behind it wasn't wasn't to form just kind of speculative theories or 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 philosophical kind of ideas about things but but uh, really directing attention so in in, in the, like this Dzogchen uh, approach this, uh, naked awareness I call it <laughs> Self-liberation through naked awareness. <laughs> and like I've said before, like what is it like? What is it that see like in a dark room? What is it that can see the darkness? And and this is beginning to to just question that which is so so present, but yet. We can be overlooking it by looking, you know, by by attaching to the to the objects that we're that that impinge on us. So, like like in a dark room, you can oh, it's dark, I can't see. It's so dark, I can't see anything, uh, because we're used to identifying with, with things that we see, with things that you can see in in a lighted room. And maybe our whole identity is is with you know we feel all right, we our sense of security and self is, is affirmed by turning on, switching on the light and everything's fine, I can see everything and, and then when it goes dark and you get very frightened in the dark because you can't see anything, you're sent, you don't know 
what's around you, what's in the room anymore. You think it's a complete absence of light, but there is that which is aware, and that's light. And so that's our refuge, is in that awareness alone, that, that which is aware now is, is the refuge. It's always, like Venerable Sunya to say, it's always now, it's always here, it's not something dependent upon on having light, electricity or having a, or that we can only practice in the daytime. Or, or that blind people couldn't get enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> It's very simple. It's it's very difficult to 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 maintain that awareness because of the forces of habit are so strong. And you can see how you know in a community we can just get so tangled up in emotional problems about who said this and who's not doing what they should do and who's doing too much and and what's wrong with this and I mean the world is such a is so fraught with uh, with all kinds of complexities, and when you think about running Amravati, your mind just boggles. You know the complexities of the whole thing, and the and all the laws of the land. And then you think in a few years we'll all we'll all be one big uh, economic market, and probably be even more confusing <laughs> because this the. We, we just keep adding more and more and more. <laughs> and so, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just, uh, and, and the holy life, can, you can make it in terribly complex, difficult way to live if you want. Got to do this, got to do this, can't do that. And it's, uh, and, it, and it's endless possibilities for problems and in uh, difficulties in this uh, in in the in the whole in the, in, the, in monastic life, but remember that the whole point of this life, the whole point of it, is to realize that simple that ultimate simplicity. <laughs> so I mean, uh, keep that in mind. That's your goal, not not trying to work everything out and and uh, you know solve every problem and make everything nice and and do all kinds of things with the you know with the you know do the best we can with what we have but the the emphasis the aim should always be on the on the realization of dhamma so that that like when we if we're going to really live together in a community then 
then make that our kind of common goal, which we, we support and help each other towards that realization, rather than get caught up in making problems about personalities and, and duties, responsibilities. You see what I mean? That we, if we keep that goal always as, as the, the common goal for all of us, there's no point in being here if that's not your goal, then, then, uh, then of course, we, we, we can. It's not, we're not going to create, you know, we, we know on the, in, the ter- in, the, in, the, in the worldly life, you can't make everybody into what you think they should be. You know, giving up, having trying to to uh, control everything, we, we have to trust that if we if our goal is the same, then then we just try to help each other towards that realization, regardless of the differences of personality or ability or whatever, and on the on the individual and personal level. And then, of course, the whole the holy life is uh, something quite quite enjoyable because it brings the, out the best in us. Where when we're trying to force the monastic system into an idea we have of what it should be, then it then it's uh, it's just oh, it's hopeless. We begin to lose all confidence that there's any point to monasticism at all. When you're trying to to make it work as a as a, as an end in itself, so so they're not here as kind of to become monks and nuns and professional Buddhists and and uh, or to make anything out of the monastic thing as an identity, you know, but but to. Uh, See it as as only a supporting convention uh, for the holy life and for the for the ultimate realization, which is always here and now, timeless. Like we've got, you know, the. Some, on the level of conventions, we've got Theravada Buddhism, which is definitely a patriarchal system that uh, that puts women always in the serving roles. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we've got, and then we have, and then uh, then we have our own uh, karmic backgrounds, our own ethnic conditioning and so forth. And, and we've got all this, 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 you know, all these influences on our consciousness. We, we come from, egalit- most of us come from egalitarian backgrounds. You know, like Western women are all, they're egalitarian. They think in terms of equality. They don't think in terms of duties, but in terms of rights. So, I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is this is the way your mind's programmed. Men too. I mean, we don't think men, Western men, we don't think in terms of duties, but in terms of rights. 
So it's a, it's a different social programming that we have, and we bring that to our practice of meditation. And not making any moral judgments about it, we recognize that this is this is the this is the patterns of thought and expectation that we have that we have to live with. But not to make them into, you know, uh, into the the goal of our holy life. Uh, you know, the aim of this this structure here is solely for the realization of dhamma, liberation from ignorance, which implies Theravada Buddhism itself. Be liberated from Theravada Buddhism. Be liberated from attachment to to Buddhism or to any anything not because it's a the Buddha said this is a raft only it's not not an end in itself But in in has, I really see a need for this honesty in the to to talk about how we're feeling, you know, like like say with the last week with the Siladars and I've been trying to to just be able to listen and hear, <coughs> listen to each other, so that they aren't we're not operating from from a lot of uh, repressed feelings and or or uh, misunderstandings or or lack of you know miscommunication or holding back thing like the idea that there's something we can't talk about there's something we don't dare discuss there's something we there's these taboos where there's certain things you talk about but certain things you don't talk about and uh, and oftentimes the things you don't talk about are things that need to be talked about the most you know just to to free the mind from this from this tendency to 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 repress or to be frightened or to uh, uh, repress your feelings. So in the Dhamma, there's nothing to hide, is there? It's a naked awareness. It's it's nudity. It's stark nakedness. It's total exposure. That word nakedness is an interesting word because it's a really startling word in English, isn't it? You see naked in the mind immediately. You know that that has a has a uh, startling effect on the mind. So naked awareness is, you know, it's pretty. It gets the point across very well because that word, you know, like, and where there's nothing to hide, nothing. We're we're not concealing anything, and there's a so nudity as a as a religious symbol is valid. Not that I'm encouraged would want to go around nude, but but the but as a religious symbol. As a metaphor for the holy life, it it is uh, it's where there's nothing hidden. 
nothing nothing is hidden and and so I mean in to ourselves mainly where everything is is exposed and 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 liberated and so in a community if we've got a lot of secrets and and hidden things going along and things that taboos and and all this going on in in the community then I mean it's, it makes it very difficult for people because then there's a you know it's, it's dysfunctional one thing is being said but it, but the actual what's happening is not not what what's being said you get this kind of hypocrisy or this is this is the this is the line, but this is actually what's happening, and and people are just you know it's very confusing. And if that's what you've got, then you do the best with that. I mean, if that's all <coughs> that we can manage is to do to act like that, then then we just have to learn to do the best we can with that. But we can also do better than that if <laughs> if we choose. To. In other words, to try to to uh, to uh, bring the life, say, of a samana to to a place where uh, where your your real practice is is not just having to deal with a very dysfunctional and and uh, community life and a lot of just endless problems around the the conventions of monasticism, to where those become no longer problems for us, then we can deal with the, with the stuff that, because we make enough problems about ourselves, <laughs> uh, so that uh, it's, uh, we don't need to, to make, deliberately make problems in the community, because uh, we're, we, we create enough problems, enough suffering in our mind for the penetration of the Four Noble Truths. Even if this was a completely honest, direct, absolutely marvelous monastic community that, with, that had no faults in it at all, he still wouldn't be liberated by the community. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not, not, not an end in itself. But it's trying to, to, to clarify and to, to support each other towards that realization rather than than try to uh, then try to inhibit or to prevent or cause unnecessary obstructions to each other in the path How does that feel? I like to say, nothing to hide. I used to be a person who had a lot to hide. There's a genuine fear of, of exposure because uh, it was just living a life where you were very private and you kept everything. Not that we go around confessing everything to each other, but but there is a willingness to to talk and to be open and not to to feel that, that we have to hide things from each other, isn't it? 
Is there anything that any of us have ever done, or you know, no matter how uh, bad or what, that that we would, you know, that 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 we wouldn't be uh, understanding about? You know, there's a sense here, isn't there? We're not here to socially judge or morally condemn anyone, because. So that there's, there's a, a you know you a community that has a, a willingness to to accept and to to feel compassion and to and to not fix anyone with a label or to put them in a category uh, uh, a, a judgmental category because we're we're putting that we're trying to encourage them toward that ultimate realization which transcends any any of their conditioning you know, so we're, the aim say the, the compassion thing is to keep no matter what your identifications are or your fears or sense of yourself no matter how what it might be uh, is we're not trying to reinforce that as you as as uh, or fix you with that or imprint that or make that a kind of permanent uh, tattoo on your mind, but to say no matter what, it's not self. No matter what you think you are, what you've done in the past, it's it's a memory, it's a perception, has no substance, not real. Don't hold on to it. Let go of it, and and. Uh, be, be attention. Pay attention to the way it is, and so your liberation is 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 uh, is in the present, and you're not you're not uh, giving wrong inf- wrong information to people. Like anatta is a very skillful perception, isn't it? Because like people, you know, you, you give people ideas like you're an angry person or you're a greedy person or something like that and then they if I if I go around talking like that to any of you and because I'm in an important position and what I say you take you can take quite seriously so I said you're the problem with you is that you're an angry person and then you think I've got a lot of anger in me and Ajahn Sumedho said I'm angry an angry person, and that, that's how it make, makes you sound like you're an angry person uh, all the time. You know, that's your character. That's what you are. That's what you seem to be all the time. And uh, and I've done that, and uh, I've made those kind of mistakes, and and uh, saying things like that to people, and I uh, regret it because it's it's uh, it's not skillful thing to say. So what what is in terms of dhamma? What do you somebody that you well the, if there's anger remember it's it's impermanent and it's not self. <laughs> so you're, I mean you're pointing you're not saying they're not angry, or you're not trying to to just paint the, a pretty picture for them. You know you're we you know you're you we really think you're a wonderful person, and uh, and trying to to jolly them up but pointing to you know no matter what you think you are that's not what you are and and uh, no matter what you've done in the past that's not what you are it's not self 
So then this, this is a skillful way of, of influencing people because it starts you reflecting, you know. It's this anger that I'm feeling, this resentment is, it's, uh, it's suddenly, you're starting to, to see it in terms of not-self rather than as a, an ongoing, seemingly permanent personality problem. So in this practice, like the Four Noble Truths, uh, apply it to the, to the, uh, you know, it's a reflective teaching. So it means it's now it's about one's own experience, suffering, the causes, the cessation, the path, and the teacher samuppa. It's about. And make it work so that it, it, it's helping you to, to be mindful and understand the process of how ignorance conditions suffering. And then, uh, then, then contemplate the, the, the emptiness or the silence, space. Turn, have this sense of turning to the silence, listening. So your mind opens wide, and there's this, this relaxed sense of listening and attention, and 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 use skillful means that help you to relax and trust in being that way, so that you you, you really because you can really feel comfortable in that way, like a sense of really relaxing and trusting and being at ease. In which you you uh, then you naturally incline to that once you fully you naturally incline to that once you fully appreciate that you that will you'll you'll incline to do that more and more. But if you see uh, sound of science is merely a, a, a something to get rid of something, then it doesn't work very well because uh, Whipple with Dunha is is uh, is the problem there. So it's not to just, you know, get rid of this by listening to the sound of silence. That, that's not, you know, you're not aware of what you're doing. You're merely just grasping the idea and trying to use it to, to, to get rid of something. And it won't work, that, that whole, because the attitude's wrong. And also learn how to to bear suffering, like pain or or emotional pain. Like it's it's uh, when when somebody upsets you emotionally, just uh, and you feel you feel very emotionally like you're really suffering or you're hurt, wounded emotionally. Then then uh, contemplate that as an object. You can bear it, but that which is aware of that is. If you don't, if you don't establish mindfulness around it, then you you just create suffering. You you just wallow in suffering, 
you know, resenting, getting angry, feeling hurt, feeling misunderstood, and then we just wallow in this, and we don't, uh, we don't learn from it. But with emotional, especially emotional suffering, is uh, is so frightening to us usually that we, uh, you know, that we, uh, because we, it, it creates us, because it seems so personal, seems, you know, it has this strong sense of being really me. But that which is aware of that, that's your refuge, not this emotional uh, whirlwind, but that which is aware of that. So that's like this insubstantial lucidity. It, it seems that what you were just talking about, that seems more essentially what a lot of the Mahayana people are pointing to, the difference between the teachings, because they're, they're pointing out that the Hinayana approach of non-grasping is very clear, and that you, you eventually come to see that there's nothing you can count on, and that grasping to anything is just frustration and uh, sorrow. However, it it can often sometimes just lead to a kind of negativity in its own right, like, oh God, I can't have anything, it's just, I lose everything. And so they go more for the, they say, well, there is something, you know, the, the, the bottom line is basically this, that your own intrinsic awareness is totally insubstantial and lucidly clear. So they're actually, they're saying, well, here's this thing that is your refuge, but if you really examine it, there's nothing there. Um, there's just the open awareness. So that everything that arises passes away. So in, in essence, they don't exist at all. Um, and if you look for the awareness itself, you can't find anything. There is just the the, the open clarity. So that they're not really saying that that the Hinayana way is a, a wrong way. It's just more. Um, it has its own dangers, just as their approach has its own dangers as well. Which seems to be exactly what you're pointing to here. Mm -hmm. It seems like you know, as long as the, the, the difficulties, as as long as the mind grasps, is influenced, or um, you know, is very suggestible, you know, whether through concepts, ideas, words, whatever perception, then it will. Um, you know, it, it, it will interpret it through that, it will grasp, like you'll grasp emptiness and you'll grasp, in, you know, a sense of immeasur immeasurable kind of spaciousness. And so you do have to do the wrong work in a way, you know, the sort of grasping, letting go of thought, letting go of feelings, letting go of all that, because as long as you grasp at those, then automatically you will be grasping at the other, you know. Sort of Grasping at thought, grasping at emptiness, and so it's it's really important to do that very basic ground work of your habitual experiences. Otherwise, you, you know you can hear it. I mean, I can hear your teaching. You know, in a non-reactive mode, you know, in kind of where the mind, which is very open, and don't feel that I have to be either one way or the other. You know, the sense of one's own kind of natural creative energy
can just be expressed in whatever mode it has to be expressed through life kind of circumstances and interaction and so on. Where sometimes when you hear it, um, you see grasp it, grasp at the idea of being one way or certain way, then it can feel and you have to be empty. And you grasp at emptiness and then you have to be somebody who's you know, totally non grasping mode, you know, and then that leaves you with nothing and just feeling that people can really feel or leaves you with a feeling that you have really to practice really hard so you can actually grasp with the practice or grasp with something you can do to let go. Do you know, do you know what I mean? It's right, but that's, that's to be able to, right now, to be aware of that. Like whatever you, that's what like right now, whatever is going through your mind. It's just that. So like, like if, but that's the, the problem though, is we grasp the ideas, the theories of, of practice and, uh, and work from there without realizing we're doing it. But, it, that, but then we think all of the logic is that if we don't have this then we wouldn't do anything. But that's not true. If there is this awareness then then we can use the teachings more skillfully for awareness rather than using them for out of ignorance. So, I mean, if you really get to the, you know, some people think if, if you aren't motivated by some desire to attain, then you wouldn't, you'd never bother to practice. But I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, that doesn't ring true, that it's not, 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 because there's, Admittedly, uh, you can, you know, the the uh, the idea of attainment is is what how the mind's conditioned. But so many of us came to Buddhism because of the the weariness of all that, and it, it offered much more sense of not having to not having to get things, but to uh, to uh, live in a way that. That the uh, you know, that that you're develop you're 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 using this this awareness and this practice towards relinquishment rather than towards attainment. And then also like like Mahayana Hinayana suddenly these are meaningless words. Aren't they? They just, <laughs> you know, it's just <coughs> words that come into the mind and come and go. Suddenly, you know, before you think there's a real, there's a real solid thing called Theravada and a real solid thing called Mahayana and and then there's a real Vajrayana and there's a and these are these are real, you know, solid teachings are very different and suddenly you know when you're when you're contemplating and, and observing it from what it really is it's just perception rising and ceasing and then then somebody said well you know that Theravada preserves the real teaching of the Buddha the real Buddha's words lie in the Pali scriptures and and that Mahayana stuff is not true they get into that one, or the Mahayanas say, "You 
Hemionists, you 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 you're just so uh, you're so narrow and you're you're so uh, uh, blinded and you you didn't you weren't aware of the, the grander teachings that the Buddha taught later and, and uh, the higher teachings for the more the the, the four noble truths were taught to the to the five disciples who were you know they were just. Uh, they, they had. They weren't even Buddhists. <laughs> so it's uh, these strong opinions. This, this. Uh, you know, because when you when you have an axe to grind, you know, then you it's hard to uh, hard to see what you're doing. Because then your your whole sense of I've got to I've got to this is this is what we have to believe in and and, and that and yet you can stand behind that you can observe that that feeling of of uh, this that this is the true teaching and nothing else is. Because if you're even if you're saying this naked awareness, this is the real teaching, all this other stuff, this uh, insight meditation that they do, this vipassana, or this, uh, this uh, zen, or this hasi uh, sayadaw um, method, or goenkaji, they're all wrong, they got it all wrong, this is, this is the way, what are you doing? <laughs> you're, you're grasping. <laughs> you know, you're grasping an idea again. I mean, and, and this is where where you get all these these uh, problems in the Buddhist world, isn't it? Because each teachers tend to grasp their own teachings or their own methods, and so you get this kind of fanaticism where you say, "This is this is what the Buddha really taught," and they and everybody everybody thinks this is what the Buddha really taught. Nobody, no, I don't know any Buddhist teacher that thinks he's teaching something the Buddha didn't really teach. <laughs> Who's right? You know, so the, 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 uh, but that, that grasping of it makes us into, divides us. So, I mean, so even no matter how inspired you might be by the words or by, you know, Ajahn Chah, a Dzogchen teacher, the highest teaching, and, and, and uh, Ajahn Sumato, and we're we're doing the this really high practice, and it and, <laughs> and you start grasping that that kind of thing, you know. You can see any any attempt to any any how your mind might suddenly go and and cut and latch on to that as some. Something you know as a, as a something that because it, you might find it inspiring or or that so you, you you hold on to that but you can be aware of that too of that in us which holds on to to those kind of ideas so then you're getting you're you're going right to the very source of, of this awareness where you can see any any kind of grasping that goes on. 
it's interesting that sometimes <coughs> people talk, you know, you hear or you read in, in books or, or teaching, you know, that um, you, know, they, 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 you, you um, justify uh, attachment to activity or attachment to doing to, um, you know, by saying that if you don't do something, then your energy is just going to go haywire or you're going to go crazy and you have to channel it through something, you know, so maybe through sort of good actions or practice or whatever. I just would be interested to, you know, what you, how you, you know, because it can be very misleading for, for a lot of people, you know, if they don't do something, then they, you know, I'm not saying I believe that myself, but there's a lot of, you hear and, 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 and read kind of a lot of you know, various people say, you know, that you have to, there's that energy, that life force, that you need to channel it, otherwise it's just, you know, you, you, it will either be, uh, you know, festering there, doing nothing, or repressed, or, you know, and, and I say, I'm slightly you know, playing the devil's advocate, I mean, you just want to like, how would you, you know, how would you respond to that? You know, I mean, just just by the fact that we need a lot. Of, would you say that we need a lot of energy just to to be aware, and that could be one way of transforming the energy, you know, just through awareness, through just the effort it takes just to go back to this. Well, I'd be careful about grasping any idea. Uh, I think if we work from that, just the not. Not that we just the ideas are wrong, that but the grasping, that kind of holding out of ignorance is is the cause of suffering. So if we keep that in mind, then then we can adapt our behavior to certain you know individual needs. Or I mean, this is where the upayas are necessary, where you, your skillful means. Each one of us has to work out our own skillful means. You know, what what works, what kind of technique or upaya, because each one has our karma to, to live with. I mean, you have yeah, the certain tendencies and habits and, and uh, emotional qualities and that that each one of us has and not, you know, are all different, so the wisdom, banya, is is ability to uh, to figure out how to what you know what uh, or to to be able to try things out to see the result. Like uh, like yeah, I remember in Wat Pong, you know, you uh, when I first went there and and uh, I was uh, you know just so I I wanted to do fasting, so. So uh, I asked uh, Lung Pha Chai, I said, can I, I want to go on a week's fast. And uh, he said, okay. <laughs> and uh, he doesn't, didn't look enthusiastic, nor did he look like he didn't say no either. Just, okay. And so then I went on a week's fast, and, uh, and I didn't know how to fast then. It was absolutely horrible, because I, 
I just got dehydrated. I didn't know how to fast. I just didn't eat anything. And uh, and then all the kind of and I didn't take any salt or anything. You, all that you, the, so that the kind of the liquid you're drinking, like water, after a while it just go right through. There's no. So I, I just I just got in de very dehydrated in a week's fasting of just drinking water without any food or having any salt, and it felt pretty horrible. This dehydration. And so then he said, what was your experience of fasting? <laughs> and after then, uh, then uh, and, I, and I kept doing all these special practices for, for quite a few years. And I'd go on fast and I'd go on kind of very ascetic kind of uh, special retreats and not that sleep, the non, uh, the, I'd do the sitter's practice sometime and I'd and I was a very strict vegetarian for a year, and I was uh, doing all these things. And and then uh, I remember one day uh, going up to uh, talk to Ajahn Chah about doing a special practice about food, and and so he looks at me and he kind of gives me a quizzical look, and then he then he points to one of the monks sitting nearby. We were in the dining hall, and he says, you know, he says. Uh, You know, Ajahn In, he uh, he just eats his food every day. That's all. Only a tip, you know. Here is, you know, Ajahn Chah was, was I think, getting a little tired of my endless kind of requests for doing special things. And he's appointed, you know, you don't have to do that. You don't always have to be kind of testing yourself out and doing something special and, you know, and just like Anjan In just eats his food every day. <laughs> I found that very, uh, very helpful to me because suddenly I, I realized I didn't, you know, I thought this was practice, you know, where you're really, you know, applying yourself, pushing yourself, driving yourself, pushing yourself to the limits, and testing yourself out, and all that, and then, and, uh, and by that time it, it was becoming, I, I didn't feel I was practicing unless I was really doing something special all the time. I didn't feel, I couldn't see the practice in just eating the food, uh, you know, just the daily life of a monasticism. I saw practice as is always some kind of extreme thing that I had to be taking on, and then I was, then I felt like I was practicing. So I got into that habit, way, that thinking of, unless I'm really doing something, making life extremely difficult for myself, I'm not practicing. And then that very skillful statement, Ajahn, and he just eats his meal every day. <laughs> Is that all there is to it, you know? I'll have to do all this stuff. But he let me do it, you know. There was, in, and and I did learn from it, you know. I learned I didn't have to do all that. So I mean, it's, it's not like. And sometimes you've got to allow people the space and and the, and to to test themselves out, you know. Not just say no, you don't need to do that. Just eat your food, don't fast, and that's enough. And, keep telling them how to practice, then 
I mean, they don't learn that way either. They, they, they tend, you know, you're tending to, to just uh, impose your own views on them. So, so, you know, in monastery, you've got to allow for, for monks and nuns to, to do things or have special and develop upayas, uh, but encourage them to reflect on it, to, to use it, you know, and, and not just... And, and when, when you see them getting kind of lost in their own empires, you've got to kind of maybe uh, gently uh, warn them not to, you know, that's not, you know, that they're, they, uh, they're maybe going over the top. But, but in uh, monastic life, you know, you, you want it broad enough to where people can uh, can find out themselves. So anything I say, you know, is, is it's not like this is what you have to do, and but more a sharing of experience and insight that in, that's for encouraging you towards realization rather than telling you how you have to practice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something to do. Like boredom and, and restlessness, it's, you know, it's such a strong and unwanted feeling it, that we do try to, try, you know, asceticism can be very, uh, good fun. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have never understood why people can do such a heavy ascetic practices and then until we get so actually bored. And nothing to do. <laughs> and you really feel your your daily kind of projects and interesting things to get in. When I was a vegetarian that year, I was I became obsessed, and uh, and I, I I could hardly think of anything else but vegetarian food. <laughs> 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 I became so strict that, uh, you know, like just nothing that had any kind of uh, animal product in it uh, was allowed. And, and so I'd become just haunted, you know, because when they'd pass out the food, you know, sometimes I remember some monk put some fish in my, my arms bowl. Well, I was passing out food, and some might put some fish and meat in my alms bowl. And I remember looking in the alms bowl and just feeling this rage, <laughs> wanting to go strangle that monk. And I felt he did it on purpose, you know, <laughs> taking it personally. He's destroying my purity, my vegetarian. <laughs> it's like these anti-abortionists, isn't it? Let's go kill the 
the abortionists. <laughs> I remember feeling this incredible anger, just rage. And then I thought, you know, this, you know, this is not skillful. <laughs> this kind of obsession with, with food. But then Pacha let me do it for a whole year. I mean, I could have kept it going, but after a year, I just, I suffered so much because of my obsessions with food that I decided, just like Ajahn Yin, just eat what you get, you know. Take it as it comes. Don't make, don't make your life into an endless hassle around food. I've also found, you know, I began to really hate people that eat meat. And you look at the other monks, they're eating meat, and they, they all look like ghouls, you know, like <laughs> in, in, in child grounds, eating corpses. And disgusting. You know. I'm sure, that, sure the Buddha was a vegetarian. I'm sure that he wanted us to be vegetarian. I'm absolutely sure the Buddha, it's a, probably the corruption of the monks later that they, you know, that they allowed meat eating, but because your your mind easily wants to support your own particular angle. And then in Thailand, where they say monks, uh, because it's not vegetarian country, then then if you're a vegetarian, the monks some monks call you Devadatta, because <laughs> <laughs> Devadatta was the cousin of the Buddha that wanted. It's kind of the 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 Judas of of Buddhism, you know, the, wanted to kill the Buddha, and uh, was jealous of the Buddha, and wanted to institute vegetarianism as the sta absolute standard for the bhikkhus, and the Buddha wouldn't allow it. So then, the other extreme is to think that if you're a vegetarian, then you're a disciple of Devadatta. <laughs> that the Buddha wanted us to eat meat wanted us to sink our teeth into steaks and chicken legs. <laughs> but we never what brought on this wish to be vegetarian for the moment. Something to do, I think. <laughs> and also it's idealistic, you know, the idea of not you know, feeling that you're not participating in this slaughter of animals by not eating uh, meat. And another thing was, uh, a lot of the meat you got there was pretty awful. Frogs. But sometimes the meat there was pretty, pretty horrid. It wasn't all idealistic, it was, I think, thoroughly selfish. Ajahn used to allow them to do like different kinds of 
vegetarian, like pure vegetarian, then there's vegetarians that can eat eggs. <laughs> I mean, it can kind of di different grades of it. Chicken eating vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.